for September 6, 2010, Labor Day. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 114, Pareto Superior Exchange. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Return from sabbatical and from the leading edge, by which I mean uh, the edge that is, you know, known for its early adoption of social and cultural trends. Uh, <laughs> so sharp an edge that it can be said to cut. And uh, with a clever bit of wordplay, uh, I'll, I'll call it the bleeding edge of America. Which has nothing to do with printing. I am your host, Matthew Rather. <laughs> hey, whatever. Listen, I was on iTunes ping before you were, Matt. So none of the, cut this like bleeding edge. I'm the first to do anything crap, all right? It's true. I did, uh, <laughs> I did watch the, uh, the iPod event, though, uh, live streaming from the official Apple feed onto my iPhone 4 uh, while sitting in my underwear in the living room. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I live in the future. And it's going to be an all iPhone 4 show. Because you know how much you love... No. We're here to, uh, <laughs> to overthink um, all, kinds of, all kinds of things. Here's, here's the panel. In honor of Machete, the question of the week. If you had to pick a weapon, the name of a weapon, to serve as your given name, what weapon would you pick? From the uh, from the dojos uh, of Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's Peter Fenzel. Oh, hey, this is an easy one, Matt. Definitely an easy one because uh, I, I, I would go by Caber. Uh, by caber, what? A Caber. What's, what's a Caber? A Caber is the twenty foot tall pole that Scottish people throw in strength competitions. It's like a large piece of a tree. Uh, <laughs> is, it, is it a is it a weapon or was it traditionally caber a weapon? Caber tossing. Uh, it'll hurt if it hits you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like he walks into a bar and there's like smoke rises and it was like it's Caber. Like how can you tell? It's because he's carrying a twenty foot tall tree. <laughs> it's, he broke the ceiling. No, I mean, I've heard various apocryphal stories about how the reason that Scots are involved in things like stone pudding and caber tossing uh, is because they were forbidden to practice with real weapons, like professional weapons, by the English occupation. And as such, they, uh, they maintained uh, training for martial efforts and other efforts of manly strength through older, older, uh, older apparatus that could not necessarily technically qualify as weapons, but were still, uh, still serving that aggressive uh, purpose. I believe the actual purpose, or at least the sort of more ascribed purpose of a caber is to try to cross a river. So you throw the log up and you flip it over so that it lands and you can cross the river. Um, or like a or like a chasm of some sort up in the highlands, but I, I do think that like if I were to get into a Mexican standoff with somebody and that person had like a gun and I had a caber, like I feel like that would be um, to my advantage, uh, uh, as long as they did very quickly and were so terrified of the tree falling on their head that they ran away less than twenty feet from me before the caber fell on top of them. Well, so. uh, well, caber, caber, Fenzel, I, I caber. Think- no, it's pronounced caber. It's a caber, uh, laddie. Anyway. Uh, I'm not really I should, Scott. Uh, I should um, thank and congratulate you on hosting last week. I think our listeners oh. would be very happy if I took more time off and, and you uh, took the helm more often. Uh, you know, you say that now, but I've got only a couple of good hostings in me and then it's all going to 
I'm going to start turning into drugs, and I'm going to burn out really fast. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like, yeah, hosting. Yeah, we want to we we want to get to that point as quickly as possible, Pete. It'll be more entertaining <laughs> that way. <laughs> uh, next, next from the um, from the wilds of Brooklyn, New York. It's Mark Lee. All right, I was trying to think of to fit with my typical role in the podcast. Try to come up with some sort of. St- traditional asian weapon or traditional korean weapon I'm gonna be more specialized but honestly i don't know any i'm just not that good enough of a like korean the, like the war wagon or the dragon ship oh the, the, uh, yeah the dragon ship is a, is, a, is a good one but it's not kind of the thing that you can kind of carry around with you um, your nickname that be, is like be a, your, it, yeah. a giant late medieval like ironclad <laughs> like a uh, war vessel exactly you, like, which like you, you, you hitch to your truck and then drive around town and <laughs> Could be, Mark, you could, use a, you could use like a, a North Korean weapon. You could be like illegal nuclear program Lee. <laughs> North Korean is legal. All right. But I got something much more practical and I think effective. Leatherman. All right. Because the tool itself is there's so many different things in the Leatherman. And imagine like, you know, like, oh, man, that's Leatherman. I hear that he can kill you in 20 different ways with all the little implements that fold out of Leatherman. It also created a lot of ambiguity and then make people think that, oh, that's Leatherman. I hear he's into, like, you know, kinky S&M stuff. <laughs> I, so it works on two levels, right? I feel like it would be very intimidating. Isn't yeah. Leatherman the, the villain in Texas Chainsaw Massacre? That's Leatherface. Le- yeah. oh, and Leatherhead is the, is the uh, crocodile from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And neither of them uh, wielded a small pocket knife with 20 different implements. So there. Hey, I, I can think of a tr- another traditional Korean weapon if you want, Mark. Uh, uh, go on. Kimchi. A zergling rush. That's the national sport, right? Is it zerglings or like <laughs> protoss? Oh, 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 oh. uh, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because Koreans are known for playing StarCraft, and it's true. I, I feel like that's not a cruel stereotype. I feel like StarCraft is, in fact, quite popular in Korea for real Yes, this is true. <laughs> this is not like a red oh, For the record, I've never played it. Um, never played StarCraft. I, no, I've never played StarCraft. Yeah, oh, I think man. the numbers of uh, I think the numbers of people playing StarCraft in Korea have transcended the point of stereotype. I think when it's at the point where seventy five percent of uh, of a demography does something, it's no longer an unfair assertion. Yeah, unless so that Korea, thing is Koreans is to StarCraft as Americans is to NASCAR. No, I mean, not that's still a stereotype. <laughs> 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 Baseball or? credit card debt. Credit card debt. Credit card debt. There you go. All right. Uh, Moving on, John. John Parrish. Back to the uh, back to the train. The illegal training grounds. (laughs) The the illegal uh, training camps of uh, of Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts. All right. So part of part credit for this I owe to uh, local comedian Bobby Smith, who observed this in a in in a stand up act. But my my criminal weapon name would be Lupara. Which is an Italian word for a sawn-off shotgun with a with a break open uh, muzzle load, and it was it was Bobby who observed that shotguns are the only weapon where if you saw half of it off, it becomes more intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that, that's not that's not true for baseball bats or knives or you know handguns or anything like that. But you you saw half a shotgun, I was like, ooh, he's dangerous. So yeah. I would be Lupara. If you shave about like eighty percent off of a caber, it becomes a lot more intimidating because then the person can actually like move around while carrying it. Then they can just brain you with it as opposed to having to pick it up, totter <laughs> ten feet, and then throw it at you. Exactly, exactly. But I, the point stands. Definitely, if I have like a sawed-off longsword 
Or like, that's not really, like I have a sawed off bow and arrow. It doesn't really do the trick. Yeah, not really. <laughs> uh, why the Italian name, John? Is that uh Well, because it sounds more, it sounds more exotic that way. Would you have, I mean, would you have kind of an Italian theme to, to your criminal alter ego? I think that'd be a little odd, considering I am not even in the least Italian. I know that. Well, that's why I, I think the name is. Uh, that's why. Well, I'm it's sure. it's misleading. It's deceptive. It throws people off. No one knows where I'm coming from. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyone can call me bagful of doorknobs. Rather. All right. On to the. <laughs> on to the uh, <laughs> onto the topic at hand. I'm not. Uh, I'm not totally sure what that is, Pete. I know you just got out of watching George Clooney in The American, uh, where he yes. plays. Spoiler alert: an American. Um, Zing. <laughs> who, uh, and I know from the trailer that he's an assassin and that he does push-ups without his shirt off. I don't know a whole That's- lot other than that, though. Can Can you enlighten us? What is this movie about? Sure. So it's actually very surprising because the movie is about something very specific that isn't really mentioned in a lot of the marketing. Uh, the movie is, and a lot of people know this because it was the number one movie in the box office so far this weekend, but the movie is pretty much a spaghetti western in the style of Sergio Leone. Right, uh, it combines a lot of the cinematic technique, uh, aesthetic, the music, uh, like the sort of the, the the ideals behind it, the characterizations of a Sergio Leone western, like The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, or Once Upon a Time in the West, with a little bit of sort of mod '60s kind of style Italian cinema, uh, the sort of uh, the romantic cinema, the, the sort of these like lost loves and, and these uh, sort of poignant moments of silence in these landscapes. Uh, with with a, a not even really a contemporary American story, just like an American actor, really. I mean, it's a very un-Hollywoodified movie. Uh, pretty much, my dad saw it before I did, and he told me, "Oh, Pete is really dark, right? Like, I don't know why I'm supposed to care about the main character. It's really dark, and uh, it clearly doesn't have at the beginning of the movie like a save the cat moment, right? Where the hero does something nice, and you're like, "Oh, great, this is the hero because he saved the kid from drowning. I know he's the good guy." Right? It doesn't do that. It's a. It's very noirish. It's very uh, like morally adrift. Uh, it's got the whole sort of like priest character who the main character talks to, who has like a dark secret, and the main character has a dark secret. Played and everybody by, uh, played has by dark Cheech Marin. No, that's the other one. That's the that's the <laughs> other movie. Uh, no, Cheech, Cheech Marin is uh, is in one that I think John saw. Which I don't know what, how how sort of like similar it is. I know that it's it marketed itself sort of as a western, right? Uh, machete, right? Right. Uh, or yeah, action, not more as like a pulpy. It was it was more marketed as an exploitation film. But I'll let you I'll let you continue talking about the American, and then I'll offer my comments on on Machete. Okay. I mean, I, I also I don't uh, really think that it's particularly useful to overthink this part of it, but it was very good. Like, The American is a very good movie. Uh, but sort of putting that aside for a moment, it's very complex. Uh, you never really find out information that would explain to you what has happened over the course of the movie to anybody's satisfaction who cares about such things. Uh, it doesn't really matter that much because if you have a sense for the style that you're working within, you know that you're really not supposed to know or care. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's interesting. These, these sort of movies that take the bleakness of, uh, of, of a sort of modern view of the world, and modern I mean that in like sort of capital M sense of 
20th century. We're abandoning the traditional ideals that have upheld the way that we feel about life, and we're looking at a sort of bleak industrial present and an uncertain future. Uh, it takes that, but like the Italian cinema in this style, it juxtaposes it with sort of extreme moments of kind of poignant beauty and uh, sublimity. Right, so so George Clooney in this movie, for example, has this cove. It's like area by. It's not cove, but it's, he has this sort of like patch of grass by a river with a hillside that only he knows about. Uh, it takes place mostly in the Apennine Mountains outside of outside of Rome in like a sleepy city. I think it's the Apennines. It might even be the foothills of the Alps, but um, it's in Italy. Right, the whole movie's in Italy. Most of the actors are Italian. Director uh, is is uh, I think. The director isn't Italian. Um, then that then I'm wrong. But uh, the director is a guy by the name of Anton Corbin. So, uh, but but most of the crew is Italian. Uh, it stars as the priest, a guy named Paolo Bonicelli, who is a very um, Italian, a very sort of story Italian actor. He's also Italian. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I feel like people. It's really hard for me. I don't really have the kind of scholastic vocabulary. That, that I feel comfortable with to really talk about noir um, and to talk about I- ideas around noir because I think it involves a lot of kind of postmodern literary criticism that I don't feel really captures why these things matter and why we watch them. Um, and you can talk about, oh, like in this Humphrey Bogart movie, everybody's getting shot in the back and the women are all kind of scheming and you try to fall in love with them, but they're deadly and there's all this other stuff. But I don't think that really captures what's going on here, which is this sort of, this this like, bleak empty meaninglessness but against this sort of beauty of life like the noir detectives are really really cool right and and the noir movie is beautiful and it's ugly but it's also awesome and uh it's it's not there's when my dad told me the movie was dark like i have a certain sort of uh, stereotype in my mind of what dark is like stereotypes the wrong word it's this sort of reduced idea of dark and i always associate it with the character of lobo Right, uh, and this is the character that DC came up with as their big answer to Wolverine, the Marvel antihero, who was like tough and and cut people with knives from his hands and stuff. <laughs> uh, and I used to talk a lot with uh, uh, Overthinking Podcast listener uh, Crindog Ben Krinsky about Lobo, and about how, and, and we would sort of shake our heads, and and Ben would be like, "Yeah, I saw the cover of a Lobo comic book, and he had a gun, and he had shot it, and all that, and around his wrist there was like a jaw, and there was nothing left, and the idea is that Lobo had stuck his hand inside someone's head and had shot it, and there's an idea." that like this is dark this is edgy like this is cool uh this is like anti-hero action of badness and 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 like oh he's riding a motorcycle and he's hurting people and like because we've been so fed the you know truth justice in the american way character it's refreshing for us to look at the side of ourselves but that kind of darkness is not the same kind of darkness that you find in movies like the american or in like noir stuff right where yeah there is a certain amount of like oh man, that person just shot that person and didn't care about it, right? But I don't really think that's what, what makes it dark. What really makes it dark is the sort of adriftness from uh, either principle or some sort of idea of human nature that is kind of comforting. There, there isn't a great deal of sense of comfort that people face in their kind of existential and um, meta- metaphysical uh, existence, right? And, and they have to go, they have these like meaningless lives, but they are meaningful to them and and, and there, there's this there's this definite sort of cosmological darkness uh, that is different from the kind of like content based darkness where it's like oh we're going to throw this in the movie so this demographic likes it and this demographic hates it because we want to be edgy right like this isn't like Hannibal Lecter dark although Hannibal Lecter is a little bit dark both ways but the American when my father told me oh it was dark I didn't really grasp that it was going to be like 
a pretty much straight up spaghetti western. And and I've been really kind of wrestling with what I think about it and how I feel about it. There's a lot of symbols that run through it. There's a symbol of this butterfly that flies around that, that uh, George Clooney has tattooed on his back. Uh, and he is like Mr. Butterfly, which doesn't really make uh, a great deal of overt sense, but you can sort of analyze it. Uh, there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful women. And they're of a sort of 60s style, right? And these like these uh, with like beehive-ish kind of hairdos and like kind of mid-thigh length short dresses with big belts. He has a love affair with a prostitute. Like, like stuff like that. Stuff that you've seen in a thousand movies before but done really well. Um, and I, I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around it a little bit because I did just get out of it. Um, but I mean I think that there's a lot of different ways in which our culture tries to address this issue of darkness because we assume that it's some sort of dichotomy with lightness, which we understand a lot better. We have this idea of the American dream and things that are good, and I don't think you just have to be American to, to be part of this kind of like – Yay, culture! Like yay, like being the like good guys win at the end, like happy ending, love story, like all this other stuff. We have different sense of what the opposite of that is, and I thought that the American and being the opposite of that was going to be opposite in one way, where it's like, oh, George Clooney is a hard boiled assassin, and he doesn't care about anybody. He rides around in a roadster and gets crazy car chases, uh, and he like does he smokes crazy no it's the other way where it's like george clooney like sits in a clearing in the wilderness and like looks at a woman that he doesn't really love and like uh pours a bunch of chilled wine down the down the the riverside or in the grass so that the cops think there was a picnic there you know like stuff like that it's like um it's like poignant and sad i wouldn't be surprised if you see it come around oscar time it's a really good movie uh uh, of the sort that they like to nominate people for without giving them awards um because it's like very stylish and 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 very very cool very good i recommend it but anyway, um, going back to your larger theme of darkness here, and I wanted to, yeah. you mentioned Lobo. Um, yes. And uh, briefly to illustrate a point of like, you know, a certain type of darkness, which uh, the American is not, uh, yeah. which this may not be totally germane to the larger conversation about darkness, yeah. but it's worth pointing out. You said that Lobo was a DC Comics answer to Wolverine. Yeah. Almost as if like, kind of like they were like, ooh, me too. Let's have our own version of Wolverine. Yeah. However, according to the Wikipedia article for Lobo, um, which we all know, blah, 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 trustworthy, reliable source. Um, the, co- the creator of Lobo is quoted as saying, I have no idea why Lobo took off. I came up with him as an indictment of the Punisher Wolverine hero prototype, and somehow he caught on as a high-violence poster boy. Yeah, so, so it's, this, it's, it's the Scarface problem, right? Mm-hmm. Where like, like they, make, they made Scarface uh, because they wanted to do a cautionary tale about the dangers of drugs and the problems of drug culture <laughs> and how it destroys your life. And in fact, they made the coolest drug dealer ever and real drug dealers love him and wear t-shirts of him all the time. And rappers talk about him all the time. That's a, so, yeah, so, the, that's a problem that comes up a lot in visual storytelling, right? Is that the uh, things that are morally um, uh, impossible to countenance, uh, in fact, look awesome on film or in a comic yeah. book. Right? Who's, who's that? Who's that French director? Isn't there a famous French director or film critic who said that? Like, it's impossible to make an anti-war film because because uh, war is too awesome on film. Or somewhat, it, yeah, uh, because people. Look good it now. sounds like it sounds like Truffaut. Uh, I think Truffaut said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like so, Truffaut. And it's that sort of that same effort that produced the Battle of Algiers, the the cinema verite thing, where they're trying to kind of reconcile uh, the art of film with the sort of uh, moral reality that they want to depict, as opposed to the one that tends to end up on the cellulite after you take pictures with the camera. Um, but yeah, no, I think, and I do think that the people who wrote Lobo, I mean, Lobo is funny. Lobo is a comic character a lot of the time, right? But so he's not like Spawn, where he's like really dark, right? It's like, oh, I'm Spawn. I talk like this all the time. I have chains that come out of my back. Um, 
but I mean, Lobo is like he's like funny sometimes, and yeah. he's he's got a sense of humor about it, which you could think of. I guess he's sort of oriented towards being a parody of that, but it's also I think the people who embrace that kind of do know that it is funny, you know, like like. I mean, I think people understand. The Punisher is a pretty funny guy. Like he's got a giant skull in his chest. You know, it's it's like which is kind of silly because um, it's like, oh man, awesome, total skullness. He's wearing like tight spandex with like a, a gun. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm not pointing out why I think the Punisher is funny too. But like, I don't think that there's a. Uh, I was talking about this in one of the comment threads. I don't think it's necessarily. It's mutually exclusive for something to really embrace and sincerely support a thing while at the same time being like an ironic commentary or satire of the topics around that thing. So you, you can have something that makes fun of something but is still very much a party to it, right? So like you could – I mean I think you see yeah, this all the time. Like, up, I mean that's what we've call, uh, called irony on overthinking. I don't, I don't think oh, it's oh, oh, a special term. I hate that term. <laughs> I hate that term so much because it – I think it implies that you need to have some sort of hybridization, right? That like – that there needs to be some sort of special mix in order for for this to happen, where I think more often than not, when you have irony, there is some sort of sincerity beneath the ironic expression that you use irony because there's a truth that you have difficulty getting to using a discourse that follows the dialectics that you understand without upending them at some point or another. Pete, I'm going to jump in here because this is as good a segue as I could ask to talk about machete. Okay, great. Awesome. That's what I was working for. Speaking of, so upending, speaking of upending things in one way or another. <laughs> All right, so Machete, which I saw yesterday, is it, it's not it's not as you said it's not a Western film. It's more of a direct exploitation film, meaning a film that is designed to. Well, exploitation as a genre really comes from really means two different things. One, it's exploitation in a very tawdry sense. So there's violence, and there's topless women, and there's sex, and there's money and drugs and such. And there there's that sense of exploitation. And there's also the sense that it originally came up in the in what are called black exploitation films of the late '60s and '70s, in that you know it's exploiting uh, what seemed to be a growing social consciousness of the time, and tries to depict the movie as a result as part of this growing social awareness, like oh yeah, this is part of the struggle, this is part of the people you know fighting the good fight, when really it's just an action movie about some guy blowing away. A, you know, a bunch of other guys. Is it that really be- how you, I'm sorry to jump in there, is that really how you define black exploitation? Because uh, one definition that, uh, for whatever reason, I've constructed for myself was uh, studios, like I guess uh, purportedly, presumably white studio chiefs would make movies that kind of pander and uh, uh, to appeal to, uh, to African American and black audiences and that the white uh, studios were exploiting the black audiences in that way and that's why it was called black exploitation. Yes, that's, that's exactly what I meant. Oh, okay. okay. So if, if, well, yeah, so it's it's pandering to the black audiences by saying, "Hey, this is a movie about you know brothers in the struggle. You know, they're sticking it to the man. They're they're fighting back against you know the institutions. Whereas it's being, yeah. the movie is being made by institutions, and right, 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 right. you're not sticking it to them so much as you're putting money in their pocket. Yeah. Exactly. So th- those are the two meanings of exploitation, and Machete pretty adequately, or more than adequately, fills both of them because mm-hmm. a it's exceptionally violent. I mean, there or I had this I had this discussion with my my girlfriend when we when we walked out of it. It's violent, but it's not it doesn't linger on the violence. So there's a, there's a lot of exceptional there's a lot of exceptional blood, like blood splatters, people getting their heads cut off, hands cut off, machetes being stuck through people and twisted, but there's not a lot of lingering on the blood. 
there'll be, you know, a very quick splatter and then the movie will cut away, you know, less than a quarter of a second later. So I don't know. We, we were of two minds on whether that's more or less exploitative than, than usual. So there's that. Plus there's topless women and lots of, and lots of sex, you know, machete pops into bed with just about every woman he meets, including every, including every woman who's a, a name player actor in the cast. Spoiler alert. Uh, machete sleeps with a lot of women. Is uh, J- Dame Judi Dench in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and that one, let me say, is particularly tawdry. I'm. It's, it's wow. I'm just also wow. is twisting the machete inside of a human body bad for the machete? Because isn't like a machete like a thin, narrow blade that might not want to be torqued like that? Or or modern machetes of like a sort of composite material that can like withstand such like shearing forces and twisting forces? There are a lot of things that the particular machete, wielded by machete, does in this movie that are perhaps not within the limits of normal tensile physics. <laughs> so wait, so if you're an actual... So the the the, uh, the knife care in this movie is not realistic? As you're saying, the blade, it's not a guide to blade care? <laughs> not not strictly. Although he does so spend a, a lot of time sharpening the blade. So if you're a huge fan of machetes and like a big machete enthusiast, and you've been waiting all your life for the movie that really like says, "Hey, these are machetes, and this is what they are," you might be pretty pissed off that this movie misrepresents what like machetes are capable of doing in a general sense. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> like, does he cut know. a lot of underbrush? Does he cut through a lot of like plants? Actually, I think the machete is never used for that purpose. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> oh, all the fanboys are writing emails right now. Oh, they're so upset. In, you got to write that fan service. In all seriousness, I think machete, machetes have um, gained more notoriety recently in various parts of the world where they've been used to hack body parts. Uh, I, I think I may be making this up, but I'm pretty sure like in the Rwandan genocide, for example, the machete was uh, one of the weapons of choice because it was very cheap and the blade was big enough to cause some serious damage. Or am I making right. this up? Yep. No, I, I, think, I think the Rwanda genocide actually happened, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you're not, you're not, uh, so anyhow, you're not making it up. So that's, so very, so that's so extremely the, lurid. Yes, yeah, so that's one level of exploitation. And the other is the the more social awareness aspect. So a brief overview, if you're not familiar from the trailer, the movie is set in Texas in the... In the context of this uh, this political campaign, this senator, played by Robert De Niro, who is up for re-election, he's taken a very strong anti-immigration stance. So Machete, who is apparently a day laborer, is hired to assassinate him in, or- in order to keep you know Mexicans from being deported back across the Texas border. But what it turns out is that Machete has been hired to uh, botch this assassination so that It'll be sort of a shot in the arm for the senator's re-election campaign because now we can make it appear that there's a real war between Mexicans and Americans in the streets. But what they don't know is that Machete is actually a very dangerous person. He gets out of the uh, he gets out of the hospital where he's taken to and proceeds to cut, shoot, blow up, incinerate, and gouge a, a bunch of bunch of different people. So there's a lot of there's a lot of talk in the context of the movie about the you know about the very real issue of. Uh, and I'm. I don't want to go. Uh, well, we can go into detail here. I mean, I, I might come back to it as a uh, as a as a post in its own right on the website. But there's a lot of talk about the about the nature of law and how you know there's law as a system, but the idea that law is somehow less partial than the men running it. And as this movie slowly picks apart, it's it's really not like there's there's the law and then there's the people who are in charge of executing the law. 
And really, there's no higher there's no higher authority that the law appeals to. That the law is no better than the people who are enforcing it. And this is this is a point that's brought up by by several different people in the movie, and ultimately resolved uh, in favor of open and violent uh, revolution against the against the law in this case, and a sort of final set piece conflict that is that's pretty entertaining to watch. But that's the that's the exploitation aspect of. Well, that's the second exploitation aspect of the exploitation movie. This, this sort of—I won't say it's a faux social consciousness, but it's—it's it's introduced and then not really satisfactorily resolved. But it is—it is brought up in more detail than than you would think in in a typical action movie. Well, it's a gesture, right? It's a gesture as social con- at social consciousness. What to sort of justify all the carnage and the sort of lurid subject matter to make it seem like there's something else going on other than a kind of pleasurable, uh, uh, you know, a, a sort of pleasurable bacchanal. I would say yes. Uh, of almost violence. entirely. I would say yes, almost entirely, except for the fact that the movie is directed by uh, Robert Rodriguez, who is you know who's from you know who's from the area and. Has has made has made more than a few movies in the past talking about the talking about Mexican identity and the relationship between Mexico and the United States. One example being uh, the, the third City. film in his his mariachi trilogy, Once Upon a Time in Mexico, Sorry, I where where there's where the the plot is you know Johnny Depp is this CIA operative who's trying to destabilize Mexico by and and the plot gets a little convoluted by overthrowing the drug lord who plans to assassinate the president with the use of this particular general. And it, it gets a little complicated at some point. And ultimately it really is just an excuse for Antonio Banderas and, uh, who was it? Not Mark Antony, some, oh, Enrique Iglesias, Enrique Iglesias. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's really an excuse for Antonio Banderas and Enrique Iglesias to run around Mexico city and, uh, shoot lots of soldiers. Yeah. But, it also talks about that that particular Mexican identity and the relationship between Mexico and the U.S. And you know, will will Mexico define itself as a nation outside of its its trade with and its sort of military slash espionage subservience to the United States? Right, right, right. Which is ironic, I guess. I mean, I guess ironic when considered in juxtaposition to the American, which plums the sort of absentness of the American soul. Uh, and one of the uh, where it's like, like meanwhile, while like the Mexican guys are like, oh, these Americans, they dominate our country and they they enforce the law on us. And then it's like, meanwhile, like George Clooney's off in Italy, being like, I don't know who I am. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like I mean nothing. I think there's a great scene in the movie where somebody says like, oh, you're American. Uh, you 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 think you can escape history. Right, I think that's what the title of the movie means. It's like the American is like the person who thinks that they can escape history and they, they can live in the present, which is something the movie says that people are really incapable of doing. You can't you can't live in the present. History is always there, um, which is of course like an interesting juxtaposition against revolution, which is a, the the nexus of living in the present and living within the scope of history, right? Because it, you're you're sort of subsuming history and you're not so much rejecting it as you're kind of sort of fulfilling it. Uh, or, or, and I guess it's also that idea that things imply their opposites. So by destroying history, you adopt history. Uh, I mean, yeah, when Antonio Banderas like walks down the street at the end of Once Upon a Time in Mexico, like draped in the Mexican flag, after shooting a whole bunch of people, 
like i guess he's expressed a mexican identity independently of the united states but it's definitely in opposition like if there hadn't been the americans messing around and the drug dealers messing around to shoot in the first place then there's no there's nothing there's no nationalism to express i mean oh he plays a guitar like great you know, a lot of people play guitars. Like, you know, mariachi music is great, but like, it doesn't for me justify having like this political entity versus that political entity and and all that other stuff. And yeah, I mean, he's a really Enrique, good guitar player. And Enrique Iglesias is a wonderful singer slash grenade launcher guy. And I really think that more of his albums should involve grenade launchers. Has he come out with a song anytime recently? I mean, has he, has he been in like mole removal surgery for a long time? I haven't heard anything from him. I shouldn't be so mean. Like, like he's a nice guy. Uh, I shouldn't be mean. To- <laughs> I don't know he's, whether he's a guy or not. He's he's good people. One of the, one of the one of I guess the subtexts of Machete, if if the movie was deep enough to have subtext, is that it's really hard to define what the American identity is, especially in the South and Midwest, without without talking about Mexico, without talking about immigrants from Mexico, Central America, and South America. One of the one of the interesting things they do is after. Uh, Machete's uh, botched, or in this case, framed assassination attempt on the senator. There are news reports that uh, that are, are shown of the senator going to the hospital. And, you know, video footage of the assassin fleeing the scene. And as is traditional in movies like this, we see these news reports on television as being watched by other people going about various points of their lives. But all the people we watch are uh, presumably are Central American or South American laborers going about their day. Like some of them are dishwashers in a restaurant with the TV on. One of them is is changing the sheets in a hotel. One of them is in a construction uniform, I believe, watching it through, I think, a, a shop window or something. So it's 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 the point the movie's making about how, you know, con- uh, contra the the rhetoric that the the fictional senator in this movie uses, there isn't mu- there isn't really an American identity, at least in Texas, that's separate from this heavy immigrant culture. Uh, another, another item to this is the fact that we never see anyone in this movie eat anything that's not Mexican food. <laughs> even, even Jeff Fahey's character, who's the, the long-haired, gray-bearded guy who hires Machete, he was in the original trailer, and he's also brought back for this movie. Uh, we, we see a scene of him angrily eating, eating lunch with his, with his wife and daughter, and he's, he's eating tacos. And he, at one point, he, he snaps his daughter, pass me the salsa. <laughs> I mean, every, everyone in this movie, even the, even the rabid, you know, even the rabid isolationists eats, eats Mexican food. Well, this is clear. It's not an accident, right? Yeah. Right. It's a very heavy-handed, uh, heavy-handed symbolism. I don't like, know. That's, you not, know. that's not super heavy-handed. I mean, okay, heavy-handed isn't, yeah. isn't, isn't the right word, maybe, but it's, 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 if you deliberate. get past, it's a very deliberate symbolism. Yeah. There's a, there's a very... There's we a are the world. We all eat food. <laughs> there's a similar scene to that uh, in The American where he's sitting in a cafe. He's sitting in a bar, right? And he's waiting for a contact from his assassin boss. So he's in this bar very much in Italy. And there's diegetic music that you hear, which is the music from Once Upon a Time in the West, right? And, <laughs> and he looks up. And you see that in the bar is playing the movie, right? So George Clooney is an American <laughs> star in an Italian movie where he's playing an American assassin in an Italian bar watching a movie that takes place in America with cowboys in it but was made by an Italian director in Italy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's just like, 
weird. And like, oh, and then there's someone, then there's an Italian who's outside in a car who's watching him and keeping track of everything that he's doing. Uh, and it's just this wonderful circle of like, like, what is the relationship between these cultures, between this like American and Hollywood cinematic culture and this Italian cinematic culture? I think that scene, yeah. I think that scene to get any more meta, George Clooney would have had to have held his hands together like Zach Morris and said, whoa, time out. And looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They'd be like, "Oh, this Ita- this Italian water is great," and they'd have to be like, "It's Avion." <laughs> what? <laughs> I love I love San Pellegrino. San Pellegrino yeah. is owned by Nestle, which is a you know, <laughs> Swiss, Swiss company. company, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, so it so it all it all comes together. I mean, movies are part of they're a big part of nationalism. I mean that's what Inglorious Bastards is about, right? It's about the relationship between film and nationalism and uh, about the sort of legacy of 20th century film as its relation and, and its relationship with nationalism, how there was a battle over the soul of film during the 20th century between the Nazis and Hollywood and how Hollywood won and so now Hollywood gets to make movies about Nazis getting shot and and like mutilated. And like that's sort of the the way that it's defined, right? And that's how it works. Um, and so I guess in this case case the machete movies like machete and i mean i haven't seen machete but i've seen once upon, once upon a time in mexico and it sounds like it has a similar sort of veneer of of mexican nationalism like the 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 nationalism doesn't necessarily exist outside of the movie to the extent that it exists inside the movie like the movie is creating this thing at the same time that is praising it right and like giving voice to it um because like you know the day laborer has to be watching the tv uh and the tv it's interesting that it's going through screens right and that like that there's news reports because at the same time the movie is what you're watching Mm -hmm. and so you're getting your ideas from the movie like the people and the characters are getting ideas from the things that they're watching um, and then and, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's like, get your ass to Mars on that little screen, and it all goes crazy. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, people watching screens in movies, like what the F? That's uh, uh, it's definitely definitely like an extra layer that you don't have to throw in there if you don't want to. It's like that number five thing. Like, so let's, let's talk about one other thing with, with Machete. Namely, I mean, this, this is probably common knowledge to anyone who's listening to us, but uh, Machete's genesis was as a trailer for the Rodriguez-Tarantino double feature Grindhouse. There are a bunch of fictional trailers made up that accompany the film of fictional exploitation movies, which would be of a similar genre. There was a horror movie called Thanksgiving, uh, another horror movie called Don't, a sort of cheap exploitation movie called Werewolf Women of the SS, I believe. Directed by (laughs) Rob Zombie, I believe. (laughs) Yeah. And and starring, I think, Nicolas Cage as Fu Manchu or something like that. (laughs) That's very true. So true. And... And uh, Robert Rodriguez's Machete, which... No, there's a great example. I mean, there's a great example of sort of satirizing something while at the same time embracing it wholeheartedly, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like Grindhouse. Like he's Lobo right there. <laughs> <laughs> Lobo, hey, that's the Spanish word, right? Or no, is that not a Spanish <laughs> word? <laughs> I don't know. So, I, don't know. so I, I mean, the, the genesis of this movie was as a, was as a trailer. So this was... This was Robert Rodriguez's idea of, hey, if, if there were some fictional movie from the 70s called Machete, what would the trailer for this movie look like and what are the sort of things it would depict? And then so he creates this fictional movie in his head, abstracts it in, in this sort of very alchemical sense down to its rawest, most exciting components, turns it into a trailer, adds it to this movie, and then the response to this trailer is so enthusiastic that he has to then reverse extract the movie, which didn't exist before, into a real thing. Right, right, right. 
So, so what do we think of this? What's with this this sort of weird distillation process? This you know abstraction focusing, and then what's the opposite of abstraction? Concretization. That, that's an ugly word, but I can't think of a better one. This this realization uh, into into an actual movie afterward is is that we were talking about the soul of of a movie before that. Is this uh, is this a, a more real expression of the soul of a movie? Is it a cheaper expression of the soul of a movie? What's what's the deal here? I mean, I don't know. I think that um, we've talked about about our tours before, uh, also, and, and this idea that movies are sort of these creations of these individual people. But but movies are these huge collaborative efforts, and they're the product of industries and and all these other people. And I think that that. We, there are so many movies made and so many movies watched and so many movies that happen that I think we almost come to believe in them in almost a, a pseudo-religious sense that there's like a universe of movies that exists. Almost as if like the movies have to be explored rather than created. Right? They have to be discovered. It's like, oh, what's the movie that's going to come out next summer? Right? Like, oh, I can't wait to see what's going to come out next summer. There's this faith that next summer there's going to be a new movie. It's like the passing of the seasons. It's like the rotation of the earth around the sun. That these things are going to happen. And I feel like this kind of extraction re- reflects that kind of view where it's like, oh, there's a trailer that's popular. Now that movie exists like out there in the cosmos of movies, and I have to go find it. And I have to go like make it real and bring it into the world because like that's what the rules of this system demand of me. Uh, right, like that's sort of what the the rules of the cosmos of movies say needs to be true, and, and I think this this is uh, also reflected in the proliferation of sequels and, and the rhythm of the production, like the promotion and production and, and the denouement and all this other stuff. Um, I definitely think that to an extent, I mean, no one person is really in control of it. You're sort of you're sort of looking at the the big picture and and the thousands of people and millions of people surrounding it. I don't know. I would compare it to a Renaissance sculptor starting with the rock and knowing that when they carve into the marble, it's going to be a statue of David, simply because they're so Im- Im- just just inundated. They're just like. Under, they're just embedded and they're just part of this culture of sculpture and depiction that they know what the thing is supposed to be, what the rock is supposed to be before they even touch it. Even though such an a priori existence of the statue within the rock is impossible, right? And like it's not, it's not, it's hyper real rather than real, right? You, I mean, what you're uh, talking about, Pete, is a dialectic between a, between a thing that is, is sort of discovered and a thing that's made or, or you know, like an yeah. artifact and a revelation, right? Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. Then, I mean, I, I'd say that operates even at the level of artists. You know, when you, when you listen to, uh, when you read, when you do something that, uh, you know, a lot of, um, lazy writers who don't want to get down to writing uh, like me do, which is read interviews with writers or read, you know, manuals of how to, how to, yeah. <laughs> um, how to, uh, how to write. Uh, people talk about kind of taking dictation from the muse as it were, right? Like, mm. uh, like, uh, you know, you get in the zone and suddenly you're surprised by what the characters do as your fingers dance across the keys and the words, yeah. you know, appear uh, as if unbidden on the screen. Um, the the, uh, the I mean there are two sides uh, there are two sides of this that's that's aside from the creative standpoint uh, you were talking about more about the audience standpoint though where where the commodity sort of conveniently enough masks the means of of production and and we tend to relate to these things as as uh, something that you kind of discover as though it were a seashell on the beach right yeah 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 rather than rather than being something that is the the uh, the product of of human labor uh, or of industries you say industries create. Mm-hmm. Uh, create movies, and actually, not just the movie industry that creates movies. I mean, it's a, you know what I mean. A lot of industries have to yeah. kind of be functioning to create movies. Robert Rodriguez, though, seems to kind of stand against this. Um, 
you know, uh, stand against this kind of industrial industrial production and be closer to the idea of an auteur. And he's lucky that he he lives in a he lives in an age where technology has enabled him to do you know to do a lot of stuff without the the backing of at least the mainstream sort of Hollywood studio movie industry. Mm-hmm. Right? He's got his own little mm-hmm. thing going down in Austin. You know, and he he yeah. cranks out those Spy Kids movies like uh, you know, like nobody's business, and and yeah. sells a zillion DVDs. He's like the he's like you know what he's like he's like the um, the Mexican American Tyler Perry, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. You know that, that's that's fair. Yeah, where he kind of has his own, and actually Tyler Perry has done it too, hasn't he? He's created his own little movie studio, and I shouldn't say little. That sounds demeaning. Uh, I don't I yeah. don't mean to demean it because I actually. Yeah. Um, uh, I actually I really admire that, like the the kind of the gumption, you know, the the whole American denial of the past that is involved in sort of establishing your own um, mm-hmm. your own little thing. One of the things that uh, that sort of relating to movies as found objects does is it is it makes us think that the movies are made by other people or better people or they come from a better place, right? Hollywood yeah. or you know Bombay or. Uh, you know, France or however you you um, conceptualize the notion, uh, rather than thinking of yourself as as potentially a participant in the you know in the making of movies, right? Um, yeah. I I have mixed feelings about uh, about this because if everyone realized they could really sort of make their own make their own movies, uh, we'd we'd uh, have to sit through a torrent of awful movies. But you know what? Mm. We already have to sit through a torrent of awful movies. <laughs> and if a lot more movies are made, a, a greater proportion of them isn't going to be awful. You know, 90, mm. whether, whether it's just Hollywood product or whether it's, you know, the product of every, uh, every child with a high-def, you know, handheld camera in the globalized world, uh, 99% of it is still going to be awful. Uh, always, you know, um, n- no matter what. I, d- I don't know. John had a yeah. question at the beginning of this, which was, you know, is there an essence to, <laughs> like, is there kind of an essence? <laughs> no, we, I, think, I, think we've, I think we've, we've covered it uh, in sorts in that, you know, the, the reason the trailer was so compelling was that, you know, Rodriguez hit on the essence of what would be a, a fun, watchable, not too deep uh, movie to, to while away, you know, 80 minutes, two hours. I'm not sure exactly how long it was. My one, my one complaint about Machete, and this isn't really overthinking, this is more my view, is it could have stood to have been, been about 20 minutes shorter and could have lost maybe one of its big-name cast characters. I won't, I won't spoil the movie too much by saying whom, but you know, once, once, you, once you see the movie, you'll know who I mean. Well, that was true. I mean, you know, Once Upon a Time in Mexico was too long as well, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, it, it was... Uh... Yes, but Rodriguez has since claimed, and I, I just know this because I was reading about Once Upon a Time in Mexico today. Rodriguez has since claimed that that was deliberate, that, oh, it was supposed to be this really big, ornate uh, plot and cast because it was supposed to be the equivalent of The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly to you know, the other two movies in his trilogy, which were, I suppose, the, uh, the, the rest of the Man with No Name uh, trilogy equivalent, which I, I'm not. I'm not sure I buy entirely, but eh, that's his argument, and I'll, I'll let him go for it. I try to, um, I you know, exploitation. <laughs> what is it? I <laughs> nouns. <laughs> They begin. They, they, they establish <laughs> a topic. How do they work? Yeah. <laughs> Batteries. Um, exploitation, yeah. right? Like uh, exploitation in film marketing is is a word just kind of for advertising. Uh, I, you know, is a word for like marketing to a particular demographic. 
um, mm. and and is in that sense is denuded of its uh, of its kind of normative implications. That is right. Like exploitation. Exploitation didn't exist as a genre until it was around for long enough for people to comment on it. This is something I've, I've talked about before when talking about parody, in that first you have to make a bunch of art, then the critics have to look at it and decide that it all fits in the same category and give that category a name. Then people can start deliberately aiming for that category or parodying that category or deconstructing that category. But no one, no one ever sets out to invent a genre, or if they do, they're kind of an ass. Well, it's, uh, let me, it's true. Yeah. I mean, and you know, this being the internet, there are, there are a lot of asses. But I think the point I was trying to get at is, <laughs> <laughs> Matt, don't go to those websites while you're on the podcast. It's distracting. <laughs> Sorry. Um, we now know why the sound quality is so bad because you got, the, uh, you got a lot of stuff going on in yeah, the background. I'm, down- I'm downloading uh, high def, um, you know, <laughs> genre exploiters. Oh, manchete. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, what I'm saying is that all movies are always already exploitation movies in that there is something there is some aspect of the movie perhaps not lurid sex or violence uh, but per, you know perhaps a star or perhaps a, a, a something that appeals to a certain demographic that is being capitalized on um, you know in order to in order to get you to open your uh, your wallet right which is the right and so, it, so two. Well, things, all right. So right? let me just let me just jump in there. I want you to give a, an example of what is seemingly an innocuous movie, which is uh, as far from what you would typically describe to exploitation. For example, Pixar's Up. What exactly is that exploiting? Oh, I was going to say, I, I was, I, I was hoping I was going to get to choose the movie, and I was going to choose Notting Hill. Starring, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hugh Grant and um, and Julia Roberts, and like a star, you know, star presence um, is one of the is one of the things that that is exploited, right, in movie marketing. Um, yeah. That is that is to say, is used as the basis of a claim, uh, which is an argument for you to come to open your wallet. You know, I'd say that. So, in the Pixar, case of Up, I mean, then is Star what, Pixar? What, yeah, what it, I th- I actually think it is, right? Do you remember what they called that on the posters? It was Pixar's, Pixar's up. up. You know, and that that like that's that's like you know Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant in in uh, in Notting Hill. Or um, another uh, another good example of this, and although I think this is a a fairly well acknowledged example, would be the the teen romances and teen comedies of the of the eighties, uh, such as I mean. To, to a very obvious extent, movies like Breakin or Breakin' to Electric Boogaloo, which are about, you know, these, these hot street teens who are really good dancers and they stick it to the man and they save their community center by holding dance contests. And woo, the system, the system goes down when, in fact, these movies are being made by a very well-financed studio system. And the system is, in fact, being strengthened by paying ticket money to see this. Yeah. So, so is Machete knife exploitation or Mexico exploitation? Uh, I mean, hold on, I, I think that this Mexico, uh, I don't know. I I think a lot of what our conversation today has served to unmask is the is the idea of national identity in yeah. movies, right? Um, mm. That is to say, this kind of uh, this the kind of nationalism that is engendered by movies is a straw man in a sense, and yeah. really bears little um, little resemblance to. I, you know, I don't know to the to the facts on the ground, right? Yeah. Well, let, let me 
can I talk a, a, for a hot, a hot second about this exploitation thing? Just, no, because I wanted right to, along. No? To the, All yes, right, fair I wanted to get a word in Edgewood. Uh, so I had a political science professor in college who talked for a while about exploitation, and he had a saying, which was that the only thing worse than being exploited is to not be exploited. Uh, and he defined exploitation as an economic relationship where somebody puts in a certain amount of value or money into you and, and your work and then takes out more than they put in. Right. And so an exploitative relationship is like a boss who pays you like X dollars, but then makes like twice that much money and profit off of your work. Which, and that by, that the, person which is by the way, Karl Marx said is like the, you know, that's the theory of surplus value. It's the foundation of capitalism. Yeah, exactly. And like, and that's exploitation. And there's this idea that this is somehow wrong, but it becomes very difficult to formulate economic systems that function if you don't have that. Right. Cause you, then you don't have an incentive for developing systems for the, uh, the um, the sort of uh, assignment and the sort of uh, distribution of labor, right? It, it's hard to figure out how to get people to do specific things if there isn't an incentive to people who logistically coordinate such things, right? And so an exploitation in a market system operates well when the exploitative relationship is somewhat Pareto superior because the person who is being exploited makes more – uh, out of the exploitative relationship than they would have without the exploitative relationship, right? So there's sort of a two-way exploitation that's going on, but there's definitely like a one-way, uh, a one-way, a one-way of doing it. I feel like when we when we cast exploitation as this negative thing and this morally wrong thing, I mean, what are we left with? We're left with like manorialism, I guess, or like not even that. Like it's very hard to come up with a way in which goods and services pass from person to person without there being an exploitation of some sort, where somebody makes money off of somebody else's work or interest well, the, the or. I mean, the big stars and the idea—the idea of like exploiting Julia Roberts—is you know, you may pay her twenty million dollars to be in Notting Hill, but you make so much more off of that. Uh, yeah. With you know, via the promise, uh, the way the big stars have um, have done it is by you know, uh, getting what you know what are called points on the back end. That is to say, yeah. a, a percentage. Of, yeah. You know, a percentage of the <laughs> <laughs> maybe if she's five three, oh, <laughs> um, a, a percentage of the of the profits of the the film and the best deals are are what are called first dollar gross deals, um, mm. which means that before the expenses of the film are paid off, uh, that you know the gross uh, profit of the movie is used to calculate the the points on the back end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But that's not you know I mean uh, wh- what are we talking about? I mean the you know collectivization of movie star labor. I would just like to I would like to really just praise Joe Esterhaus for being the screenwriter who really broke the cycle of screenwriters being exploited by being paid far more for his work than his work has generated for <laughs> 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 terms like showgirls and <laughs> anyway anyway uh, I shouldn't be mean to Joe Esterhaus because he'll be mean to me so anyway uh, <laughs> so yeah and he has wonderful hair and I don't want to chastise people for that and it's easy to forget that these people are real people right just like with the whole thing about where it's the movies that exist independently of our notion, it's like crate digging, right? Are you, you're familiar with crate digging, right? This like idea that you're mining for music, like you sort of dig through boxes of music to find records that you sure. can use to make like hip hop samples and things like that. Like, that's that way of thinking about stuff. I'm sorry, I interrupted you before because I wanted to talk about my political science professor who is awesome and South African, but I interrupted a point that you were making prior to that, which you can jump back to now if you want. I'm giving you that opportunity. You actually, and, uh, you, you know, you actually made the point, uh, which is that um, 
Uh, you made the point. You also used the term Pareto superior, which not to get down a rat hole, but you should explain because not everyone. Oh, okay. So a Pareto. So Pareto. That's a sort of a, like a neoclassical economic term, right? And Pareto is an Italian economist, I believe, right? And yeah. uh, a Pareto superior exchange is an exchange where people make a trade of some sort, and both people end up with more utility, and utility being any measure of value. People often. Um, say that utility is the same as money, but it can also mean anything that makes you happy or makes you pleased. And it's based around this. You have to first of all, you have to acknowledge that you put value in people being happy or or pleased with things, and that it's bad when people are unhappy or unpleased with things. You have to have some sort of basic level of value for the system to be meaningful. And it's debatable whether such a thing is a is a is smoke and mirrors or whether it's the real deal. But at any rate, in when we're when we're buying and selling things, we do have to take into account the idea of money and the idea of like things being worth something and the idea of what you would buy and what you wouldn't buy. So for example, if I had like a whole bunch of rubber right sitting in my room, just a big slag heap of rubber and Matt Rather had I thought you were going to use aluminum as an example. Let's use aluminum. Yeah, let's do it that way because then we can use overthinking a lore better. So like let's say that I have a big old slag piece of aluminum, you know, and Rather has a, a manufacturing plant that doesn't have raw materials and I were to give rather a bunch of my aluminum and then he would then in a, he would make this aluminum into root beer cans and he would pay me in root beer cans in like a share of the aluminum that I gave him um even if the the rote mass, even if like the mass of aluminum I have at the end is less than what I start out with, in the form of root beer cans, it's worth more to me. Uh, and so I, I'm happier having ten root beer cans on my floor than having a giant slag piece of aluminum. That's actually not a great example because there's like a two exchanges going on. But it's more like you know if I give you the aluminum. And then you give me a bunch of corn, right? And you have a whole sh- uh, heap load of corn. Um, and, and then you're capable of manufacturing that aluminum into something. You've, you, the aluminum is worth more to you than it is to me. And the corn is worth more to me than it is to you because you have a whole bunch of corn. Um, so that exchange has made us both wealthier and happier. And so this idea in, in part of one of this idea of free market economies, one of these ideas that drives market, not even free market, but market economies that makes them possible is that when people have an opportunity to trade stuff, uh, they do figure out things that are mutually beneficial. Like not every trade is something where somebody gets screwed, right? Like a lot of the time when people make a trade, both people are happy. Like when I go to the comic book store and I give them $5 and I get a comic book, like I'm more happy with the $5 than I, with the comic book than I was with the $5. Like the comic book is worth $5 of happiness to me. And for the comic book store, they have a lot of comic books. They get them for less than $5. So like the $5 is better for them. Everybody wins. So Pareto superior exchanges are any exchange where the utility for both people involved or all players involved is positive. Um, that, that, as that opposed so. It took a while to, to get at. I'm sorry. I should have called the machete. <laughs> let me let me let me jump here and switch. I mean, that was a you know that was like a quarter semester of economics that got condensed into. That's the kind of service we provide. Yeah. That's look, <laughs> you listen to listening to overthinking it. It's always a Pareto superior right, exchange absolutely, because, because like, you learn better. and we get to hear ourselves talk, and it's awesome. <laughs> so let me let me let me take what Pete said and tie it back into sort of the original talk of the subject of exploitation films, right? Because Pete, what you said was interesting in that. Um, you know, it, it's, if it's a win-win trade, you know, if someone's not getting screwed, then that's not exploitation, right? Yeah. And you go back, you think about, you know, well, it movie, is exploitation. Anyway, yeah. Well, then, then it gets really negative. Not bad. It's exploitation, but it's not bad. But anyway, go ahead. Sure. But we go yeah. back, I think we missed something, uh, one a part of the original definition exercise of exploitation films, like the black exploitation, for example. I guess the getting screwed part, um, is that studios get to fork over bad movies and pass them on, right? And present them to an audience which uh, which 
theoretically deserves better quality than the uh, the tawdry and uh, the tawdry plot yeah, elements Mark, and, gotta, and, and gotta, the flimsy you, stories and that well, sort of hold thing. On, hold on, hold on. Who's to say that those things are bad? You got to watch your hegemonic discourse here. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I mean, say, drink. I'm not saying the specific movies are bad. I'm just saying that that is a way. If you wanted to go back and you know work in the, that sort of that information that Pete provided to the original definition, uh, the definition we were previously talking about of exploitation films. Because that does describe some of them, right? I'm looking at Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS here um, as an example of Nazi exploitation, which uh, I haven't seen, but I could probably guess is was you know a, a, a bad movie. Yeah, but Mark, well, I, I, have, yeah. I have an entire podcast on this very website devoted to Gossip Girl. I am categorically against the idea that the traditional you know filmic and artistic values of quality uh, necessarily are the <laughs> values that provide pleasure, you know, to the viewers of, of, of filmic <laughs> products. This is this is why we have things like public television and publicly funded arts institutions, which are also good, right? So, like, I mean, I think it's I don't think it's controversial to say that the market, the free market, doesn't necessarily always produce the best art all the time of all kinds, right? Like that, like yeah. But I mean, I do think that people give market generated art a short shrift, and it's a lot better than you give it credit for a lot of the time. But like, if you want Shakespeare, like, don't be like thinking it's going to show up in your local porno theater you know like like you're going to have to build an institution that doesn't operate with as much of a market driven priority i mean that's why we have tax incentives for opera companies right is because without them we wouldn't have opera and if there's no opera then that's bad because opera is a good thing and is part of better art and it's like it's it's something that we should preserve and value because it matters to us and it provides a greater pleasure to everybody that the money that we invest in it is a pareto superior exchange for us all it's a public good um, so like we yeah. sink some tax money into yeah, it. Like, I mean, I, I, I I mean without so much poopy opera that I I'm beginning <laughs> to wonder whether it is actually. Yeah, well, without, without, steering, like, yeah. without without steering this conversation away from pop culture and into competing schools of micro and macroeconomic thought, I mean there is the argument that you know if it were truly Pareto superior, you wouldn't need to you wouldn't need to use public funding to get it done. Because I mean, it, it, like you know, you don't need to use public funding to get you to go to the comic book store. There's no there's no tax stimulus program required to get you to do that. You do it because it's obviously fun. Whereas with opera, the, the case is a little is a little trickier to make. And I'm sympathetic to the argument that you know, opera is a, is a, enough of a public good, as you say, that it's worth you know it's worth spending it's worth spending government money to to make sure it sticks around as an institution that's fine i would i would just hesitate to say it's the same thing as traditional you know hand cash over get art transactions yeah it's not the same you're right and it's not the same but there but you, one thing there is a lot of public money that goes to me going to the comic book store because the public the government does build the road that i go to, on to get to the comic book store and the government does like enforce and subsidize the sort of building inspection codes that allow the comic book store to operate in the first place and make sure that the roof doesn't fall on top of my head and it does you know it's heavily subsidizes and builds infrastructure to support the electricity in the comic book store so the government is making decisions all the time and supporting things all the time that are supporting all of these different kinds of economic activities and, and you know and, and you know who built those roads and put that building together and installed that electric wiring Mexican day laborers and that's how it comes together <laughs> <laughs> it all goes back to the Mexicans and the machetes a, that they as a closing observation my usual jogging route takes um <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> go on. <laughs> go on. Hold on. Let me let me sip my chai. <laughs> go on. Exactly. 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 Takes me past a, a Home Depot and a stand of uh, Hispanic day laborers. Right. Um, in you know, which is a common sight here in Los Angeles, and I always feel kind of bad doing this because I'm I'm by jogging in public, I'm uh, consuming physical labor conspicuously. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right, right. Everybody listen to Matt Rather's White Guilt. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we have, I think we have our title there. oh man so so you're saying well because the price of labor is pretty cheap and it's i mean are you saying that you should instead work out by going to the side of the road and trying to get picked up by the home depot to go like spackle somebody's ceiling those people know how to do that you don't know how to do that you can't spackle somebody do you you feel bad do you feel bad because your jogging doesn't add to the gdp <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, I think that those of us who are knowledge workers have have kind of an effed up relationship with, you know, with the idea of labor. You know what I mean? With the idea of a of a of an honest day's work. You know, and, I, and oh, here's our Labor Day tie-in. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? And there you go. Like, and if you um, even if you do something that creates a lot of uh, even if you do something that creates a lot of economic value, right? Um, yeah. Uh, that, that, well, I mean, uh, yeah. that the the I, I don't know the uh, the connection of of labor to suffering or of labor to exploitation right is um I I don't know is kind of obscured in the in the sort of knowledge workers uh, uh, experience of their own job right and this is I something that yeah. this is something that's alluded to a little bit in uh, Machete you know Machete is. He starts the movie as a day laborer, so he's one of those people you would see outside the Home Depot looking to hop on the back of a truck and do work. And over the course of the movie, he does intersect with the world of knowledge workers. There are times when he's called upon to you know, search someone's laptop for video evidence or to you know, send, a, send a message to someone. And he's, he's depicted as sort of at a loss in this world of, of more high-tech surveillance and communication. There's a, there's a very comical scene where he's trying to text someone and is having trouble figuring out a phone and needs, needs a little help doing that. So, yeah, it is this sort of very obvious divide that's not very often touched on between, you know, the, the, people, who, the people who do the, I guess you'd call it the grunt work that builds the infrastructure of a first world society and the people who do the managerial or you might even call it middleman work that that runs the capital of a first world society. Mm. I mean, when I was watching The American, one of the things that always struck me was like, why does this guy want to do this? Right? Like, why, why does this guy who's an assassin, why does he continue to be an assassin? He, he gets, he, he, and he's like, get hit me. Well, he makes money, like, right? Like, they pay him. Right, but he always has to be on the run from people. He can never have any real personal relationships. Um, but I'm like, well, I guess he doesn't have to work, right? And he like he works less hours a day. He gets to like jaunt around Italy and eat nice cheeses and like read the newspaper. And like if you want to read the newspaper and eat nice cheese, like being a hitman seems to be a reasonable way of going about and doing these things. Um, but I think that the important thing is that um, is to remember is that there's nothing magical or sacred about exchanging physical labor for money. Right, and I think that there's this mythological construct that we have around right. this idea yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that, like, that like physical labor is real and intellectual labor isn't real. And it's like we sort of get a step away from the myth of Sisyphus here because like 
physical labor can sometimes be very illusory in its importance, right? Like, like you can roll that, lot, bro, that rock up the hill and it'll fall down and nothing happens, right? Like, I can, you know, if I were to go and try to build a house without the necessary knowledge, like, it would be a ridiculous waste of time and effort and I could work very hard at it. So, so physical labor, working hard in and of itself, like, with your muscles – it doesn't necessarily generate value. I mean, we have this idea of the noble farmer, right? And it translates into the, sort of the noble worker who works in the factory. And it's that, oh, are they noble because they use their muscles? Like, no. But it's a useful, it's a useful symbol. It's almost kind of fascistic when you think about it. It's like, because then you associate physical strength with moral strength. And then that means that, the, that the, the army has to be one of the moral forces in society, which interferes with the separation of the military and civil power. And that can lead to a really difficult time of running a democracy or any sort of like a parliamentary government system because you don't have oversight and stuff like that. And the so next thing I, you know, you I got Joe Patrick yeah. Harris dressed as a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> People are troubled by fiat money. They're troubled by fiat money. They're troubled by like devolved supply chains. They're troubled by economic complexity. And they're thinking, oh, like, let's just trade vegetables for goats. And it's like, well, you know what? Like, that might make you feel better, and it might be simpler, I guess, in the way that you're thinking about it. But it turns out that there's actually nothing better about it in terms of running an economy, right? Like, it's actually not special um, to make goats out of, like, to make your raise your own goats rather than to spend your time, like, going to technical school. You know, like, it, it's, it's not like God's going to come down and be like, thanks for making those, that cheese, that was awesome. And then they're going to look to the person who was on their laptop the whole time and being like, you're a bad man because you use spreadsheets. Right. Well, and, you know, like- the, the, <laughs> and the idea of this, I mean, the idea of the, I mean, Mark calls it white guilt. It's, it, I suppose it is white guilt, but that's, that's historical accident. It's really rich guilt, right? Um, that, that has to do with, um, uh, it, Oh God! What am I trying? There to are say? a lot of poor, there are a lot of poor people who work in computers, and like there's a lot of people in call centers who don't make a lot of money who are working in a knowledge economy. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I'm sorry, yeah, I should no, interrupt. No, 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 but you're right. You're you're right. I, I'm I'm sort of saying it imprecisely, but I'm saying that the um, uh, the idea of the kind of the, the idea that it would be better uh, if we all went back to noble farmers uh, is an idea that inherently recapitulates the inequalities that gave rise to you not being a farmer in, in the first place. Yeah. And um, it's also, but it's also related to a lot of other things because it's also related to like health problems associated with not being active and being outside. And in our day and age where like health is almost a religion because this whole like biopower idea of like the state being responsible for being healthy and, and healthiness being this like objective that we try to achieve in our lives, like we can feel like we've done like, oh, sinful chocolate. Right, like by staying inside and working inside rather than going outside, I'm less healthy. Therefore, I'm less good. Right? Um, but you gotta. actually. I brought up these effing teenagers, and suddenly everything we do is um, <laughs> sounding like Sheely and I going um 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 <laughs> on our on our show. Uh, but the uh, we we could be said to be straying a bit, but I think we're I think we're talking about Labor Day. We're bringing it we're bringing it in for yeah. a, a, a great sort of firework fireworks spectacular of a conclusion uh, yeah. about about labor. Um, you, you know, you can kind of you can kind of uh, uh, you, you everything gets to be the wire at a certain point. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, it's a lot of stuff that we've, that we've talked about, like globalization, national identity, um, uh, the production of, of films, uh, uh, exploitation and the global economy. These things all get to be a wire, at a, uh, get to be the wire at a certain point. And, you know, it's a, it's a shell game um, of like, where, where is the agency 
in in all of this, and yeah. it seems like the systems themselves uh, seem to have agency. And it, you know, I guess it's important. I guess that you think movies spring magically from the head of Zeus, or like from the back of the theater, or something like that, uh, because you you have to get on with your life at some point. You know, you have to <laughs> you have to like maybe you have to get on with your life, but I'm going to be hanging out here for a while. Yeah, no, no I, ahead, none of us ahead. has to get on with our life. We we write for a website called Overthinking It. <laughs> but you know most people have to get on with their lives at some point and and it is not a uh, time spent it is not a pareto superior exchange to spend your time uh tracing out the um the kind of the supply chain that that everything comes from you know uh right that that uh it's it, it's what it's what economists would call a sort of rational ignorance and that you know we could spend a lot of time investigating how movies are produced and, you know, the particular dynamics of a studio system and the negotiations and backroom politics that got a movie produced. But for most of us, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't make the movie more fun for us. Although we have to imagine that for the overthinking audience, it would because we keep doing it and you guys keep listening. And yet mm-hmm. the, this, this thing, you know, has kind of a nefarious uh, underside, right? Which is that, um, that kind of thinking is what gets, you know, I don't know, 12 workers killed at Foxconn every month or, or something. I, I don't know the exact statistic or something like that, right? Too much uh, masking of the means of production um, uh, leads not just to the kinds of, of um, efficient exploitation that, that make an economy work better for everyone, but also to the kinds of, um, uh, the, the kinds of really unjust exploitation that, that cause, uh, cause suffering. So there's got to be an obligation to... Um, uh, there's got to be an obligation to not just sort of my own utility, not just utility for me, but utility for, you know, my family and my friends and my neighborhood and, and all, you know, also to humanity as a whole, right? If you're a communist, maybe. <laughs> <How do> you, <laughs> I, I am a member of. The I will United. say I agree, and I'll also wish everybody a happy Labor Day. <laughs> and I hope that we all remember the efforts and commitments that our workers have made to give us the things that we take for granted, like weekends during which the Overthinking It podcast <laughs> is recorded. Yeah, you like that forty? You like that forty-hour work week? Actually, I don't know anyone on this podcast who actually works a forty-hour work week. But well, that's because we think that because we don't make like cheese and we don't plow fields that we shouldn't be part of organized labor right because that's something that only people who work with their hands should be part of right and we've all been bought into that myth that we're all managerial like uh managerial stuff and we salaried people and we we deserve we we we, we beyond us to demand such things is, is anyone yes yeah, yeah is anyone on this you podcast? White worker i'm a member of three <laughs> afl cio affiliated unions one of which <laughs> oh you the, are one of which is the united auto workers you're a <laughs> yeah. united auto worker yeah, Why are you an auto worker? Because they, they represent graduate student teaching assistants in the <laughs> University of California. Yeah, Fenzelai, I know we don't like to talk a lot about our, our offline work on this podcast, but aren't you the only one of us who's in management? Uh, I don't manage anybody. I'm really? actually in management. I'm actually in management. I, well, until, until very recently, I was actually in, the, in, the, in, the, in a uh, civil service union. What? Uh, but no strike, more. Strike, strike. Scab, <laughs> Wild, wildcat strike. That's right. We're we're calling a wildcat strike, and so we won't publish an original article on Monday on overthinking it. You're gonna have to come back Tuesday if you want to read uh, some articles. Come back. Where That's are you so he's sticking it to the man right there. 
Yeah. Um, oh, also, oh, sorry, a couple of housekeeping announcements. We are coming up on our, I think it's going to be the 116th episode. I think it's in two weeks, um, which will be our 104th consecutive weekly episode, which means that we've done it for two years straight uh, every week without a break. Um, you know, and doing it once a week for two years is actually not a bad average for a relationship. Uh, I'd like to think. <laughs> so we hope we've given you. We hope we've given you pretty reliable pleasure in our relationship with you, our uh, listeners. So, uh, you know, uh, how should we commemorate that? The the end of the second and the beginning of the third year of doing doing the podcast every week. We also it's been forever since we have a. Um, it's been forever, forever since we've had a listener feedback show, so why don't we go ahead and say that the next show will be that. Uh, so get your, uh, get your emails into podcastedoverthinkingit.com or your calls in. We have voicemails and emails galore, but we want more. We want yours. Uh, the number is 203-285-6401. Uh, I nearly gave my personal cell phone number there, which would be a bad idea. Uh, 203-285-6401. We are taking Monday off, but you can get the... Um, you can get uh, you can get us uh, during the week at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Rather, I'm going to call you out on wire exploitation. You're totally exploiting our audiences. Uh, uh, love and recognition of the wire when he just threw that out there apropos of nothing Today, i felt like i was i was exploiting our audience's tolerance for listening to me try to formulate a thought <laughs> uh, uh, the, uh, the caber has arrived uh, here comes the caber <laughs> he was just the a caber. regular grad student who loved watching hbo miniseries but then the man hired him to critique a showtime miniseries the man went too far Matt Rather is Bag of Doorknobs. <laughs> <laughs> Coming summer 2012.